and welcome to Chapter by Chapter. I'm Eric. I'm Annie. And, uh, yeah, this is episode two of our uh, delicious, delightful, delicate, della... We're we're in a delicatessen. We're in a delicatessen. We're we're eating thinly sliced meats. Uh, We're eating so much prosciutto. I'm I'm having some gabagool. Hey. Hey. Hey, little gabagool. Uh, So prasad. Yeah, no, this is our uh, podcast about uh, where we read one chapter at a time of an old book. And it's for, you know, it's like a very slow book club for all you dummies who know you want to read an old book but never gotten around to it. Right, because we know that you need your your little treats. Yeah, you need your little, you need like a little, you need your handheld. And you're, you're lazy and you want to binge watch uh, television. Um, but instead of doing that, we're going to make you read. Yeah, we're going to make you read. And what's great about reading, though, is you can binge watch reading. I mean, you can read ahead. I'm not going to stop you. But this is going to be uh, an episodic podcast where just every episode of our podcast is a new chapter of a stinking old book. Uh, Annie, what book are we reading? Well, we are reading Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, Ooh. Uh, published in 1817, after the author's death. Oh, wow. In fact, posthumously. I think I read that it was written much earlier, but then she never really got around to publishing it. Never got around to publishing it. It was it was too angry for her era. It, it's really snarky, and I can't get enough of how snarky this is. And it's too ironic because I don't know. I mean, this is we're we're this is like a literary themed podcast. It should be wholesome. This isn't the El Chapo frat house or or what have you. You know, these snarky podcasts where everyone's rolling their eyes. And yet, uh, what two hundred years ago? Here's Jane Austen. Her eyes are so rolled far back in her head that it's basically like uh, the little veins. You can just that's her whole. Yeah, it's yeah. too snarky. She, she's she she has no eyes, just just whites because she's her eyes are looking at her brain basically. I, apparently, irony is a whole lot older than we all thought. Yeah, irony is pretty pretty fucking old. Yeah, I don't I don't think we can really put a date on irony. And I think it's like even though Jane Austen kind of. You know, in Mansfield Park, she kind of invented the Victorian novel, I feel like. She's not really coming out of that tradition. She's like 18th century wit. Yeah. Dry. Here's what we mean is, basically every line of this is making fun of a gothic romance. Every line, and it's like, at first it was very charming, and at a certain point it's like, we get it. We get it, Jane. Yeah. We get it. Gothic romances are silly. Uh, so, okay, wait a minute, let's, I really want to do kind of like a DBZ theme in here, and once I figure out Audacity better, I'll be able to, like, filter in, like, a so, like, a last time on, uh, Northanger Abbey, uh, Catherine Moreland. And more Catherine Moreland. We learn about, uh, about, uh, about Catherine and her family, and how, uh, she was kind of a, just like a regular kid. And a little bit scrappy, like hanging out with the boys until she reached adolescence when she when she bloomed. She bloomed and she got really into like Twilight books and young adult romances and things like that. Yep, she bloomed. She started a Tumblr. She, uh, you know, she started, you know, texting boys. She, um, she started writing fan fiction where Harry and Ron make out with each other. Yeah, and she got into that whole kind of nasty, young adult uh, internet world, Miss uh, Young Catherine Moreland. She spilled some tea. She spilled so much tea. And 
Uh, Actually, what, okay, so what, no, sorry, I uh, What spills tea is the author. The author is just spilling so much tea because she's making fun of her the whole time. She's like, uh, you'd think this would be a book about a dreary castle, and there'd be lightning, and there'd be, like, a, a, a handsome shirtless dude ready to uh, kidnap her on a black stallion. But no, nah, she's just an ordinary kid, and literally every line of this is full of, like, a little aside like that. Yeah, pretty much every line is, uh, and uh, Catherine Merlin was not an, was an ordinary kid, and she did not grow up in a dark castle tower, and she uh, she was not an orphan, and her parents were not poor, and her uh, her siblings did not oppress her, and uh, and no mysterious stranger next door um, was mysteriously hot for her. No, None of those things happened. Uh, a witch didn't show up when she was born with an apple, and she did not bite into that apple, and then. And was cursed with beauty, but also that no one would believe her when she predicts the future. I don't know. I'm confusing a lot of different stuff here. Why don't you take it away, Annie? Right. So, uh, my feelings about, like, the shade that she throws in this book, and I was thinking a lot about this today, is that Jane Austen is conflicted. I think she likes it. I think she likes... Uh, I'm starting to think she actually likes gothic romances. She likes... She I feel like she obviously likes gothic romances, and even though she never wrote, like, a gothic romance... Like you know, the mysteries of Udolpho or whatever, she uh, she loves romance and she really believed in in love and she wrote to all of her her nieces about the need to you know feel affection for whoever you married. Exactly, and but she, I think she also kind of you know she it's like watching uh, these guys who love like me basically, but a lot of people who like uh, horror movies but the really trashy ones because it's like you know they're dumb. They love. You love you love the misty fog moors. Uh, you love the orphan that grows up into a handsome gentleman that swears revenge. Uh, the Byronic hero. Yeah, I don't know if she loved gothic romances. Oh, I think she loved like romance small r. Oh, okay. I but that, that's that's just my that's my feeling. You may feel differently, Eric. That she, I think she she might have felt about like uh, about gothic romances the way that say you know. Somebody who was coming up as a writer 20 years ago might feel about the Twilight series or about the Hunger Games. Yeah. It's only been 20 years. Since the Hunger Games? Yeah. No. Oh. No. Somebody who was like a writer in the 90s. Oh, would Right. Yeah. Would, how, how they would have felt about, um, you know, books that are very, very popular right now. Oh, yeah. Good point. Well, anyway, uh, so Catherine Moreland is just an ordinary kid, and she's uh, none of her neighbors are uh, handsome princes ready to dash her away, and her parents seem to be aware of that, uh, as well as her neighbors. So a friend of the family says, hey, come to Bath with me. And we all know when somebody says, come to Bath, particularly the... You know, the this, this slightly exciting, uh, older, somewhat older married neighbor is like, come to Bath, young lady, come to Bath. You go to fucking Bath. Yes. Uh, now, you've been in Bath. I have. Yes. I was 14. It was on a family vacation. Mm -hmm. And it's called Bath because there's a literal bath there. There is a literal bath there. Okay. And then we also learn in this chapter that there are, there are rooms where people assembly, assemble. They are called assembly rooms. They're entire assembly rooms where, and in a way, the room we're in, Annie, is an assembly room. It is an assembly room. Because we've assembled. Yeah. Yeah. Eric and Annie have assembled here in this room. We have glasses of wine. We They've assembled. glasses of wine. We assembled the wine into the glass. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's dead air, but it's dead air while we drink, yes. so it's okay. 
we have assembled the wine into the glass. And what the weird thing about assembly rooms for me is like, you know, they, there's like the room in town or the city where rich people party. But And I, I don't oh. know who pays for them. Wait, before we get there, uh, what I wanted to mention was as she was leaving, even more sass from the, the invisible author. You know? Oh, yes. So uh, we had, well, wait a minute. We actually made show notes this time around. Let's uh, let's go through things that we thought stood out. Uh, at the very top here, we have a direct quote talking about a, a, a features of seventeen-year-olds. What right. was it? So Catherine, we're told at the very beginning of chapter two, um, her person is pleasing, and when in when in good looks, because you know sometimes you're not in good looks. You wake up in the morning and you you know you you can't be bothered to put your makeup on, and your your nice jeans are still in the washing machine, and you're not in good looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it but when she is in good looks, she's pretty. Eh, you know. Yeah. And her mind about as ignorant and uninformed as the female mind at 17 usually is. Now, I want to give, I don't think this is just road sexism, I think, but I want to spread it out. All 17-year-olds are idiots. Not just female, women, girl, 17-year-olds. Of any genders. Of all the genders, if you're 17, you're dumb as a stone. I'm sorry. I remember being 17. I was stupid. I was I don't know. I was I was pretty. I didn't feel stupid. Yeah. I felt like a genius. No, I felt like I was on top of the world, but I wasn't. I was I was on I was on top of the world. I was not on top of the world. I was at the bottom of the heap. But I felt like I was on top of the world, and I felt like a genius because I had read um, On the Road and Naked Lunch. I hadn't even read those. And I read them all by myself. Nobody signed them. Yeah, uh, I was just plowing through Stephen King books, basically, thinking that I was very literary for doing that. So I think all 17-year-olds think they're geniuses. You may have heard a bing right there uh, that sounded like an iPhone text message. It wasn't, however. Uh, this is a sound effect that I put on there where uh, uh, my pants bing every time I say that uh, teenagers are dumb. Uh, my pants... Wait, it didn't do it this time. Teenagers are dumb. Bing. Okay, I did it that time. Great, wonderful. Well, yeah, so ignorant and uninformed as the female mind at 17 so, usually is. And presumably the female mind gets wiser, according to Jane Austen. Exactly. Now, do you think, because uh, Jane Austen, I imagine, was, was Jane Austen writing under a pseudonym? She was not writing under any name whatsoever. Oh. I, which is kind of, which is the really, really messed up thing at the time, because yeah, women were not supposed to be, women could be authors, in fact, like, all the like the great novels of the late 18th, early 19th century were written by women, but they weren't uh, supposed to be seen as that being like the, the their entire income is coming from writing. Oh yeah. And so a lot of these books were they were not written under by under a pseudonym. They're just written by they, they the line is written by a lady. Written by a lady. Sense and sensibility written by a lady. Because it can't be, oh my god, so you can't even attribute it. It's just like, oh, this is a silly woman's book. Yeah. That's yep. really funny. Silly woman's book. And I think like, like Sense and Sensibility was her first book to come out. And then when she wrote Pride and Prejudice and got that published, um, it said, uh, Pride and Prejudice, written by a lady, author of Sense and Sensibility. That's good. At least there's a little bit of attribution. I think that... There's some part of that that I want to bring back, which is the part where you say, like, written by a gentleman, and then you put your name, or written by a lady. Like, I think, I want some I want some more frills before my, my if I ever write a book. Like, you know, uh, Messrs. wishes to bring you a, a, an amusing diversion. Right. Well, you could say, you know, written by Eric. 
Yes. A man. <laughs> written by, a, excuse me, a gentleman. A gentleman. Thank you. A gentleman. A gentleman, yes. Right. It's, it's, it's very like a Lemony Snicket. Yes. Uh, oh, but didn't Daniel Handler turn out to be kind of a creep? Uh, maybe. Yeah. I, I've never read Lemony Snicket. We're trying to we're trying to break in on New York publishing, so if you take here if you find Daniel Handler, don't tell him I they call him a creep. Also I just used my last name on this uh, podcast. Oh well fuck it. And well Daniel Handler the only thing I know about Daniel Handler is that he played accordion for Magnetic Fields album. Oh of course he did. He seems like a real kind of a bazinga guy, doesn't he? You know what I mean? I don't know what that means. You know, I'm, like, I'm a epic bacon mustache dude, bazinga, you know? Like, one of those kinds of guys. Is he gay? Well, you can still be gay and be, like, kind of uh, over the top and, uh, you know, a bit of a tryhard when it comes to silliness. You know those guys who, like, they've memorized all of Monty Python movies and at first it's funny, but then it's like, okay, class has started, you know, uh, you, you can shut up now. Oh yeah. yeah. Of course that was that was me at seventeen when I had an ignorant and uninformed female mind. Okay. I had memorized entire Monty Python movies. Okay. And liked reciting them. Okay, there you go. Uh, that, that was the kind of unbearable nerd that I was. Absolutely. Uh well anyway, we were talking about ignorant and uninformed female minds, um uh which I wanna say also male minds at seventeen. I wanna emphasize my opinion, I agree with this only in the sense that it's a young person's mind is generally ignorant and uninformed. Uh, but, okay, so, um, Mom, the whole family is waving goodbye to Catherine Moreland, who's going off to Bath. And they make a big point of saying, uh, her sister, who, uh, you know, she's got this 15-year-old sister, and instead of weeping great tears and promising to write every day, kind of said, bye, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like how your 15-year-old sister actually Acts. would behave. Like, bye, you're going to ask me to uh, to write every day and fill my letters with uh, with talk of the of the town around Bath? Nah, bye, bitch. It would sound later. a little like this, like the mom is like, you know, Sally! Sa- Sally, your sister's leaving, say goodbye! Later, slut! Shut up! Sally, don't call your sister that! You know, whatever, mom. Okay, that's it. Okay, we're going now. That's all we're getting out of her. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much the end of Sally or Sarah for what young lady of common gentility will reach the age of sixteen without altering her name as far as she can. Yeah, she's she doesn't want to be called she wants to be called Sarah now because Sally is like a baby name, right? I had absolutely no idea that Sally and Sarah were related names. It's just random ass names. It doesn't make sense. Is, is that was one of those things like like Margaret and Peggy? Is Peggy short for Margaret? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Peggy should be short for, like, Pegara. Right. Or Pegasus. Pegas- Pegasus. I like that. Pe- yes. Um, or, like, Annapeg. Winnipeg. Like, you peg is somewhere in the middle. It's just peg. Peg. Like, peg leg. Mm-hmm. We're now we're free associating, which is, means it's time to move on. Uh, Austin throwing shade on her very own writing, doing no ways <laughs> away. What's that note mean? All right. So what I was thinking along these lines is that is, is my my theory that this is a this is a story about a conflict that's happening within Jane Austen because she's you know even though she's forty when she's writing this or somewhere along those lines she is in deep conflict about the different strains in her life which are a romance and on the one hand and satire on the other and so the the things that are present in uh, 
in Jane Austen's novels that people talk about, the romance that's emphasized in the in the in you know the films, mm-hmm. um, and versus versus the, the the satire that you know you can you can obviously read, and it's you know the shade that she throws that's on every single goddamn page, is um, is very much present within within every book, within every book, and and they bec- and I think the satire becomes much 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 more apparent. The later in her career you get, when you're into when you're into uh, Northanger Abbey and persuasion, you are you are deep in satire territory. Yeah, I was going to say I've read Pride and Prejudice. I don't recall it being quite as snarky as this. Yeah, it's not quite as snarky, and I think she's but she's also I think she like she had some hard living mm-hmm. between Pride and Prejudice and Northanger Abbey. Uh, speaking of gothic romances, by the way, uh, a lightning struck. Uh, and the front door of uh, Annie's uh, charming uh, English basement has opened, and uh, her husband, her husband's silhouette was uh, 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 was was planted in our eyes as he strode in with his black cloak, uh, and uh, he saw the two of us doing a illicitly doing a podcast under his very own nose. And he opened up the secret door in the library and swept away. He swept away, but I think he's going to return with his saber to skewer me through the heart for, for daring to record a podcast with his wife. Sorry, Steve. It does sound like Steve. Yeah, we actually that's true. We actually have an entire closet full of my former podcasting partners skewered through the heart. You know, you already know I'm lying because you don't skewer with a saber, do you? A saber is more of like a, a slashing instrument. Oh, you're right. A saber is like the like the pirate sword. Yeah, you, yeah. You you, you 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 skewer with like a fencing sword. Yeah. Well, or or like a even uh, a good fire poker would do. Fireplace poker would skewer just fine, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Any, I think I I I you know we we have many tools for skewering my podcast partners. Okay. Uh. So. Uh, Catherine Moreland goes to Bath, and right away she gets invited to a big fancy party. Uh, and it's a party that uh, we've all been to. How are we? How have we all been to this party, Eric? I, this she doesn't. It's packed, and she doesn't know anyone. Uh, she shows up. She's with this sort of uh, hip married couple. Immediately, the husband ditches them. He's like, Lur, and goes off to play some cards. And she's with this woman who she barely knows, Mrs. I'm sorry, who? What's the name of the married couple again? It's the Allens. They're the Allens. Yeah, she's staying with the Allens. Mrs. Allen appears to be kind of a, a flippity gibbet. I'd like to read this quotation. That's a description of Mrs. Allen. Very good. That, that throws the most shade. Mrs. Allen was one of that numerous class of females whose society can raise no other emotion than surprise at there being any men in the world who could like them well enough to marry them. Mm. So... You know, we know what we think about Mrs. Allen, <laughs> right at the beginning. And this is this is Catherine Moreland's only friend and the only person who has who, who who she can talk to at this party, which is a shitty, shitty party. I've been to parties like that, like absolutely, like uh, uh like I don't know. Uh, Hank from college says, like, yeah, man, I got invited to an upperclassman's party, so you show up. And, like, everyone's cooler than you are, and everyone's talking to each other, and all you're stuck with Hank, and Hank is, like, you suddenly realize that, like, Hank is an upperclassman, too, but there's a reason why he hangs around the underclassmen's dorms, and, like, he kind of smells bad, but you're stuck with him, because he's the only person you know. Yeah, and, and also, and the thing about Hank is that while he supposedly likes parties, 
He's not fun. No, he's not a fun person. He wants to be fun, but and he's like obsessed with his new Wolf Howling at the Moon T-shirt. He's got the three wolves howling at the moon T-shirt. He's like, or like some kind of a uh, snarky T-shirt, you know? He's it's really new. He's showing it off to people, but actually, he's more concerned about not getting any beer spilt on it. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much exactly Mrs. Allen. And I, I, yeah, I've definitely been to this party mm-hmm. with this with Mrs. Allen. Absolutely, and like you sat down at a table, and everybody's looking angry at you, like. What are you doing here? Like this is you don't you don't belong here. We feel kind of awkward that mm-hmm. you're here, and you feel awkward that you're here. So really, you gotta go. What, just 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 get up and leave. That's what's going on in your head. But I think what's actually going on is nobody nobody even notices you. Nobody even kind of sees you're there. You're just one of this big crowd. There's a uh, there was like kind of an interesting point in the middle there where they were talking about like sitting down and watching the dances. And it's like, it's kind of a cool, I mean, it just takes it for granted, but it kind of, it's a kind of cool glimpse into what uh, these parties actually were like. Like, I guess you sat down and you watched other people dance and then you could go up and dance too, right? Like, what was it? What was all that? Well, you had to be asked. Oh, you have to be, okay. You have to be asked to be, to, to dance. So a, a gentleman has to come up and ask you if you're handsome enough to tempt them. Them. Yeah, if you're, if you're handsome enough to tempt them, then they come and they ask you to dance. But of course, you know this isn't just any kind of dance. This is this is these are the this is the bath assembly rooms during the season. The bath assembly rooms during the season. So the, the, we're not. So this isn't just any old party, right? The, the, we're talking about like you know the uh, this is the Facebook. Event that you, uh, you 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 mark yourself interested in, um, and there were maybe two three thousand other people who also did, and you think you're going to meet some people that you know there, but you don't really know anybody. This is the Halloween party that uh, you know you managed to get uh, one of the. Uh, it's on the the townhouse greens where all the upperclassmen live, all the frats are lined up in a row on the on the quad, and the one in the really center managed to get throw the party on Halloween, so you know it's a costume party, and suddenly all the townies show up, too. And, like, people from other colleges show up. You know, there was a uh, the acapella group visiting from uh, uh, visiting from a Virginia college also drove up past the Potomac River to stop by and do that. They all showed up. Suddenly there's a bunch of people who you don't know. You're wandering around. You've got, like, a red Solo cup, and it's full of, like, lukewarm beer. And, uh, and you can't get drunk, and you can't, you can't... Because uh, it's your house, but there's all these people you don't know. All these people you don't know. And you feel ridiculous, because you had, your your costume that year was called Assault and Battery, where you were wearing, like, just a, a, a salt shaker and a battery around your, your on the lanyard around your uh, neck, and you're like, look, it's a pun, and nobody get it, and everyone's too drunk to get it. Yeah, you're just you're you're at the wrong party with the wrong people, and yeah. you don't know anybody. Exactly. And and then on top of that, this is like, they're, they're, these are these are rich people. Oh God, they're so rich. They're really rich people. This, this is, is in season at Bath. It's in season at Bath. Like everybody who's everybody is there, and who are you? Nobody. You're nobody. You're just uh, Captain Moreland, some some little kid from. Where is she from? The country. The country that's she, supposed to be. You're from the country. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're there. You only have this like random neighbor who only invited you along to have a, a sprightly young female companion to to tag along and talk to. And she's not really interested in talking to you. And she's not really interested in being at the ball. She's just there to be seen yeah. and to have other people look at her dress and observe that you are. She is in the in the 
in the right dress for the season, and then she can kind of check check that box and go home. So they actually make a point of this. Like, uh, they say, so there's a part in the middle where Jen Austen lays off the sass a little, but then toward the end she she just hammers home the, the eye-rolling snark uh, right away, where she's like, well, now that people were leaving the party, this was the time for all of the handsome gentlemen to stare up and surprise and alarm at this ravishing beauty that is our heroine. Uh, drool with wonder, and uh, their their heads turning into wolf heads. Uh, their giant hearts popping out of their chest going, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. Uh, they go like this. Right, but no wolf, wolf whistles. No wolf whistles. Hear? N- not Not nary a wolf whistle. Nary uh, a tongue rolled out of a mouth like a fruit roll-up. Uh, Neri did eyes start to shoot out of their heads like, uh, like they were slot machine wheels, and then they turn up both hearts, and then their mouths open up, and out come little chocolate valentines, like it was a slot machine. That did not happen. It did not happen. Yeah. Right, there was, there was, there was no, no one, no one. Do we have a quote here? Like, I'm actually exaggerating, but she, she basically said that. Wait a minute, hold on. Right, she says, uh, the company began to disperse when the dancing was over, enough to leave space for the remainder to walk about in some comfort, and now was the time for a heroine, who had not yet played a very distinguished part in the events of the evening, to be noticed and admired. It's time. Where's all the dudes? Every five minutes, by removing some of the crowd, gave greater openings for her charms. She was now seen by many young men who had not been near her before. Not one, however, started with rapturous wonder on beholding her, no whisper of eager inquiry ran round the room, nor was she once called a divinity by anybody. Yeah, so not at a, like at a single time you expect all this stuff to happen because she's the heroine of a book, and that's what happens to heroines of the book, and yet she's just an ordinary girl. She's just an ordinary girl, and I think she's not only throwing shade here on the mysteries of Rudolfo in Gothic novels, she's also throwing shade on her own older novels. She's throwing shade on Pride and Prejudice here. Yeah, you think so? Where exactly that sort of thing happens, where, uh, where Jane and, and, uh, and Lizzie are admired for their extraordinary beauty at the very first ball in the novel. That's right. Uh, she is handsome enough, but not... Not enough to tempt me. Not enough to tempt imperious Mr. Darcy. Mm. Meanwhile, her sister Jane is swept off her feet by Mr. Bingley mm-hmm. um, from, you know, minute one. It was, it's love at first sight. He did have the rapturous wolf howl for, for, for big sister Jane. Mr. Bingley always struck me as kind of like a not, not, a, not a very deep person. No. Isn't he kind of like a, like a, a silly sod? Yeah, he's a, he's a sweetie, but he's, he's not like a... Yeah. Uh, he's not deep. What's he, the name of the, the rake? The scoundrel? Oh. In that book? Um, Wickham? Wickham. Wickham, yeah, yeah. Wickham. Yeah, it is, it is. Who's much more fun than Mr. Darcy. Oh. I always thought he was much more chill to hang out with. It's like the villains uh, are always more interesting than... Well, anyway, uh, so, yeah, uh, she's sort of making fun of herself. Uh, you know, all this snark is kind of reminding me. So I read very recently... Uh, the, the, there's the essay Death of the Author by, I'm going to call him Roland Barthes. I know that it's not pronounced that. Roland Barthes, right? 
But I don't know. The whole point is that like when you there when there is a line like, you know, as as silly and and uninformed as the female mind can get, or things like, No one did this, it's like who's actually talking to you? Is it Jane Austen? Yeah. Is it God? Like, what's going on here? And uh, like, wh- I read this chapter at the same time that I read this essay, and it, it kind of like struck home how many instances of just the author, like the un- the informed voice in the sky, just sort of materializes. In like, it happens so much more often in these nineteenth-century novels than it does nowadays, where people are so much more self-conscious as mm. who's actually talking. Whereas in these 19th century novels, you get so many of these silly little asides where it's like, no, we're, we're friends and we're talking to each other. Yeah, and it, well, it's, I think, like a, like a lot of 18th century novels were, were epistolary, they're in letter form, and so the, you have that same kind of self-consciousness about who is speaking. And like, oh, is, is that where it comes from? It, because it's all these novels were started off as, like, letters being written to each other. Yeah, because a lot of 18th century novels were, were, like, started off as letters being written to each other. So there um, is a jovial tone between friends, and that evolves into, yeah. Exactly. There's a jovial tone between friends, and there's always a question of, like, who is speaking. And that was all, that's always been a question for novelists. Who is speaking, and what is the, what, what is the mode of communication? Um, is it just a story being told? And I think yeah. that's, like, a, there was a huge, uh, there's, like, a controversy about these Gothic novels, because the Gothic novel, there's no conceit, right? It's just I'm telling you a story. Here's some crazy shit that just happened. Yeah. Okay, that's that's kind of... It's uh, it's a good thing that this podcast is not here for us to learn anything. No, because we're not here to learn anything. Because I'm going to forget this right away. Right away. We're I, drinking wine. I would have learned... That would have been a very interesting factoid that I learned from Annie if I had ever intended to mem- remember that. But we're not we're not here to learn about Roland Barthes. Roland Barthes. Roland Barthes. I did drop Roland Barthes. Uh, which sounds like something that if I was trying to teach you something I would do, but I'm not. So, for fuck's sake, don't. No, we're not here to learn about the death of the author. Yeah, but I did read that essay. It was like I was like, yeah, this is something that I should read, right? Because I heard the phrase "death of the author" and I was like, what does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't, I, don't I don't read theory. Is, is Jane Austen dead? She's dead. She oh, was man. dead when this was published. Oh. She died of like Hodgkin's lymphoma, and when she and she was she she was so um you know she she's very very mocking of hypochondriacs in all of her novels and mm-hmm. was in real life too, and so she writes in her journal when she was when she when she was dying she wrote in her journals, oh um you know I couldn't get out of bed today must have been a touch of rheumatism I'm so I'm so fat and lazy and stupid we'll get up tomorrow. Oh, I've been there. And she's like, and, you know, four months later, she was dead. Oh, man. So, um, yeah, well, okay, so this is a, I'm sort of reflecting, it occurs to me that earlier I was making sort of a party metaphor for nowadays, but it was a very uh, uh, frat-like situation, but I want to explain how universal this feeling of being unwelcome at a party is. And I think the best way to do that is a new segment I like to call, let's describe different kinds of uncomfortable parties. So... Uh, you are invited to your cousin's bar mitzvah. It's a big deal. Your uncle has a whole lot money, more money than your parents do. They rented out this whole big auditorium. They got a DJ. Uh, there's a bunch of older kids there. Uh, they, they managed to have, like, a different uh, arcade stations with, like, Gauntlet Legacy and stuff like that and, like, the Simpsons game. Uh, so you're just stuck over in a corner somewhere uh, nursing uh, some Mountain Dew while uh, the, the, yeah... What what other kinds of uncomfortable parties are there? 
uh, one's own bat mitzvah. What, what, how would you describe that? I would describe it as um, all the all the boys who are seated, all my friends who are seated at my table, who are only some of them were my friends, and others just were just kind of there being mean and making fun of me, and uh, running up behind me and, and uh, mocking my dancing. Oh, ooh. and this was on the day of my bat mitzvah. Okay, well here's another uncomfortable party. Um, Let's say uh, a friend of yours was like, "Hey, let's go to <laughs> let's go to Verso Books. There's going to be a whole lot of left wing <laughs> activists, including that cute one uh, who uh, you want you want to ask out." And then you show up. This is the the party in the upper rooms is so a party at Verso Books where you don't know anybody. Okay, you show up and there's not a whole lot of uh, people who there's a lot of people who want to hang out. So that they can be seen, and uh, that one cute leftist you were talking to, it turns out she's like, uh, uh, she thinks that the concept of relationships in general is a very bourgeois, decadent thing to do. So like, even approaching her is completely out of the question. Uh, let's see, what else? Well, I I would say you know, like the the public Facebook party that has takes place at a uh, a warehouse in Bushwick. Yep. Um, where with there's like a, a ten dollar cover, and uh, even though you know a lot of people who are going to be there, you can't find them because the crowd is too big. And when you do find them, there are all these other cool people who they want to talk to instead of you. And so um, you just wander around and round and round, getting increasingly uh, drunk until uh, you find some other people who are equally. Dad to talk to. Uh, Josh uh, from down the street, uh, his mom and dad went away on vacation, and he throws this big kegger in. Uh, <laughs> you weren't actually invited to it. You just heard the music, and you wandered down the street and showed up uninvited. Uh, but it doesn't matter because nobody knows who you are anyway. So you think, this is a thing that teenagers do, right? They go to parties. They show up uninvited to parties, but you're just uncomfortable, you know, you know you should be there, but, uh, yeah. All right. There, there, therein ends the segment. This, this. On uncomfortable parties. On uncomfortable parties. But join us next time for more descriptions of uncomfortable parties. So before, before we end, uh, we end this episode, this chapter episode, I just wanted to, uh, talk about these last couple of lines where, where she's, she's writing about her, uh, Catherine Moreland's beauty, and there's this one line that struck that I, that that really I took to heart because it's it's so perfectly captures what it is like to be a teenage girl. Let's hear it. Um, and so this is uh, you know after nobody pays attention to her in the upper rooms, and uh, and she's about to leave this party feeling dissatisfied, like we all have done many many a time. Um, uh, it's, it, uh, Jane Austen notes that Catherine, even though nobody gave her much of a second glance, uh, was in very good looks. Oh, right. We learned that at the beginning of the chapter. When she's when she's in good looks, she's kind of pretty. Um, and had the company, had all the dudes there, only seen her three years before, they would now have thought her exceedingly handsome. Ooh. So if these had all been boys who she had gone to high school with. Who had like seen her at the end of the summer after she had decided to change her wardrobe and um, and start wearing sassy earrings exactly. and um, you know had built up her confidence and started flirting, mm-hmm. then they would they would have thought she was handsome. 
Yeah. If if only she if they had known her three years earlier, and that is that is so so perfectly encapsulates the 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 rationale of a teenager, and when it comes to I think appearance. Absolutely, I uh, I think that the uh, every once in a while I feel like Jane Austen is being too cruel to Catherine Morland, where she's just like yeah she wasn't that pretty, but that's not fair. Like I I think this is a thing. I think I think maybe Jane and Catherine would be friends, right? She's being sort of affectionate. I think she is Jane Austen. Oh, she is Jane Austen. Okay, that checks out. Yeah. Jane Austen, c'est moi. Uh, oh, si, si, n'est pas Jane Austen. Oui. Because it's a picture. Rather, right? Catherine Morland, c'est moi. C'est moi, yeah. Oh, soccer bleu. Uh, the, I, I think she's she's mocking herself as much as anybody else in the in this chapter. That's pretty fair. The uh, uh, Catherine is... Um, yeah, she's just like a regular teenager, man. Just a regular teenager, and this is hammered home in every single sentence. She is yeah. not a princess. She is not locked in, locked in a tower. Her mother did not cry oceans of tears when they when they when they parted. Gentlemen did not uh, uh, immediately weep tears for her ravishing beauty. Uh, but you know, for Catherine Morland's sake, Jane Austen throws in at the end that some guys were like, as she was lead- leaving the upper rooms, hey. Check her out. She's kind of cute, and because they, she overheard a bunch of a bunch of dudes saying that oh, she left the that. upper rooms, going, "All right, I guess that was a pretty good night." Is that Catherine? Yeah, man, she was in your upper room, upper. Uh, she was in your homeroom class last year. Oh man, she got hot. Shut up, man. You shut up. I think Eric brings up an excellent point, which is that she's seventeen. Yeah. And I think, and even though she's like hanging out with married people. She's seventeen, which is a, which is a funny thing I think to get to wrap our ha- our our heads around that we're talking about a bunch of high school kids who are talking of, who are uh, hanging out doing high school kid things, but they're about to make decisions that affect their entire lives. Well, uh, that, that actually brings up a pretty good point because like there is no division, like or there's not or there's a different division. Maybe there is a division, but it's a very different division. Like. We have high school. We have the idea of the teenager. We have the high school, and then, and then you know maybe a too abrupt shift into adulthood once you graduate high school. We've tried to extend it quite a bit with a lot of people going to college, but it's still there. But even but that like is nothing compared to what happened in the 19th century, where once you're you know once you grow tall, you know once you're I guess I don't know childbearing age or whatever, like you're an adult now, right? Like. Catherine Moreland has the uh, uh, emotions and appearance and feelings of a high schooler, but she's sort of expected to hang out with like older married couples and things like that. Oh, except that I think probably the Allens are not very old. I mean, probably Mr. Allen mm-hmm. is 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 considerably older, but Mrs. Allen might just be a year or two older than her. I was surprised. That actually took me through a loop because I was picturing Mrs. Allen as being like an oh, totally. elderly fuddy duddy, like oh, but she's she's just like a a young thing like her. She just kind of got lucky but yeah yeah she's she just she's just a few years older and yeah. she she is who Catherine Merlin is going to be in a few years and this is there's um there's a scene in Pride and Prejudice where where Lydia the youngest goes off to like Brighton I think mm-hmm. with the slightly older married neighbor and that's where she gets into trouble with Mr. Wickham Mr. Wickham because the slightly older married neighbor is not a very good chaperone oh heavens and because you know why and because she's a basically just a teenager herself yeah and then these are all like extremely young people and this becomes and because we're talking about like this is a satire or like any like 
in, in many respects and not a and not a romance. We're talking about like teenagers who um, do regular, very regular teenage things. So maybe Jane Austen is aware. Like I was about to say, like you'd think people would be more aware that having these very young people make such decisions is a bad idea. But Jane Austen appears to be aware of it. She doesn't have the category of teenager in her mind, but she seems to be aware through her writing that like this is too young to be running off with Mr. Wickham. Too young to be running off with, uh, to be hanging out with Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Allen. Mrs. Allen, yeah. Yeah, and and I think that she she absolutely ca- captures this that, that that conflict of you're dumb, you're 17, you don't know shit, you don't know the world, mm-hmm. but you but you are also expected to make a decision within the next year or two that affects your entire life. Yeah, and I think in 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 the that they do that, and it's in with these the women in this novel. It's all about marriage. Mm-hmm. In as much as they do that, they are like all seventeen year olds who also have to who we we still routinely make seventeen year olds make decisions that affect the rest of their lives. Um, you know, it occurs to me because at least so far in this novel, I feel like the men too, the way they're depicted, it's like they're very distant gods. You know, they're very distant, like Zeus. Like there's a man here, and you know. There's gentlemen that we must, you know, uh, make to admire, and there's, you know, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Allen is just sort of like barely present, doesn't utter a word. It's as though he were this sort of alien creature who sort of ferries them over to a different place. Yeah, the men, and in particular the older men, exist in a completely different world. Yeah, absolutely they do. And it's this world is never... I, I feel like I've read articles like where people are criticizing Jane Austen how dare she never criticize it? And it's like, all right, you, you weren't there. Don't, don't, don't Jane Austen's blame to Jane Austen, right? Don't. What does she not criticize? Well, people, I feel like it was an article that was like, uh, you, you should be more critical of, you, you are uh, uh, lying down and accepting this division of uh, male and female duties within uh, Regency era England. And it's like, well, yeah, but you're, you're not Jane Austen, right? You weren't there, so it, maybe it's easy for you right now to say, "Hey, Jane Austen, go and be more critical of." But like, if you're absorbed in that environment, it's just like, I don't know. Am I being articulate? Yeah, yeah, you totally are being articulate. I, I kind of disagree. I think she is very critical. Oh, okay. Well, but she's 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 critical of her own world. She's critical yeah. of her own world in the way because in a way that somebody who is in that world can be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's like, and all you know, every one of her books is is societal satire to one degree or another. Not to the, you know as extreme as Northanger Abbey, but yeah. we 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 understand that this is this is this is social critique. Yeah, 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 at the very least, it's social critique. And she she is you know she's you know whip smart observations about I think wealth in particular and the oh, yeah. aristocracy and the army and um and she you know she doesn't question gender roles as much as you know we might we might want her to but it does actually ask ask make it maybe ask questions about gender roles yeah exactly she does even inadvertently just by questioning you know the silliness of situations like these um so uh did you like this chapter i did i laughed out loud i did too i was like i've been there girl i have so been there i have i have i have gone down to the club and I've had an idea in my in my head of all the boys looking at me and getting down on the dance floor and being the center of attention and had this exact same thing happen to me where all I can see through the crowd 
of, of dandies in the pump room is that feathers on women's hats wandering around, and I can't even get through to the bar to get my to get my cocktail. Uh, I have been uh, <laughs> I have been in my early twenties uh, living with my parents in Maryland in a suburb of DC and. Uh, realizing it's Saturday night and that I probably should be doing something. So I go on the subway to Adams Morgan and I go to the first hopping joint I see and I'm completely uncomfortable there. And I show up to the bar and the bartender staring at me and I go, uh, I don't know, I guess I'll have uh, rum and Coke. And they roll their eyes and they give it to me and I'm standing there and there's like a lot of very, very attractive people completely ignoring me. Preppy Republicans in Adams Morgan. A lot of preppy, a lot of, um, yeah, but I didn't. I would not have the wherewithal to be have that category in my head. Like these are just like people who are more sophisticated than me in any way whatsoever. Like I wouldn't be able to distinguish between the preppy Republicans at Adams Morgan to the uh, more hipster types on U Street. Nor oh no, when you're when you're in that position, mm-hmm. you are there, there are no people as you understand them. They're just there's just you, and then there are the grown ups who understand about life. In fact, it takes moving maybe to New York, to here in Brooklyn with my good friend Annie, to realize that uh, Washington D.C. isn't a real city. <laughs> Adams Morgan is not a real neighborhood. None of those places are real. They are a, a facsimile intended to uh, trick politicians into thinking they're working in a real city. And you can't get good ramen. You can't get good any kind of food. Uh, you can get good Ethiopian food. Okay. 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 You, in up in the Silver Spring area, it's, there's a lot of. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's what it is is uh, they eat with their hands a lot, and you have like this bread, this sort of uh, injera bread. Yeah, yeah, and you have like scoop it up. Like, oh the no, bread Ethiopian itself food is, is delicious. Yeah, you scoop. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, uh, so I thought a good segment to close off with is like both plugs and recommendations. So like what are you reading or what do you want to recommend people read if they're not reading this already? Or like watch or do? Um, well, I think that you should read a novel. Uh, what's a good novel to read right now? Um, why don't you go ahead, Eric? I am Okay, the reason why I brought it up is I'm in the middle of... My Sister the Serial Killer, by an author whose name escapes me. Uh, I should probably say who the author is. But she's Nigerian. Um, something Braithwaite. Oh boy, I remembered Braithwaite, but I didn't remember the Nigerian first name. So, that's really Western-centric of me, isn't it? Uh, sorry, yikes, I'm really talking myself in a corner. But it's a good book. It's about this woman whose sister is a serial killer. Uh, it's like part satire and part slasher. It's very short. Uh, it's very funny. Uh, it's uh, good. So I learned a few nights ago about um, the father of Alexander Dumas. Uh, not Alexander. Alexa, the, there's you know two two Alexander Dumas, the father and the son. This was the father's father, and he was known as I think it was like the Black General, the Black Count, the Black Count. That's yes. right, and because he was. He he was um, of uh, I think uh, he was born in do you remember which Caribbean I do not island I think oh no I think he may be born in Haiti and he was uh, he his family was enslaved and his father was white 
and he had an entire black family, and his father sold his entire family except for him in order to book passage back to France. Well, <laughs> and where uh, did not know that <laughs> where the black count then became like grew up in a very very rarefied uh, French aristocratic environment and grew up to be one of uh, one of Napoleon's best generals. Absolutely. Um, who then was like because rules changed in France because of various things to do with the sugar trade, could not get back into France, and when he was in disfavor with uh, with Napoleon, kind of lived in exile, but also gave, uh, was the father of Alexander Dumas. Yeah, so Alexander Dumas wrote, you know, uh, Count of Monte Cristo, Three Musketeers. Right, and that was why I downloaded The Count of Monte Cristo, having never actually read it before. It's a terrific book, but uh, the... Uh thing about it is I think it's cool that his dad actually lived an Alexander Dumas novel. Like, his actual life was as interesting as The Man in the Iron Mask and all that. More interesting. Yeah, because it was real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. That's, 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 uh, that's all, folks. What do you think? Oh, uh, we have a theme song. Right. We, we need to, we need to ask you, should we keep this theme song around or should we toss it? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to plug it in at the end, and you should listen to it and tell us, you know, if anyone listens to this, uh, if it's any good. All right. All right. Uh, sayonara. Sayonara. Chapter, chapter by chapter, line by line, listen to our show and have a real good time with your pal Annie and Eric too. Chapter by chapter, line by line, we'll read along with you. We'll read along with you.